folks, do you feel like everything these days is go, go, go? It's nonstop from work to friends to family and a million pressing issues. Sometimes you just need to take a playoff and hit the reset button. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. Hey, it's that time of year in Minnesota again to get out on the lake, go to the cabin, sit back, watch some baseball. Coors Light is the perfect refreshment to chill during these summer months. There's only one beer out there that's made to chill. The mountains on the bottles and cans turn blue when your beer is cold, and that way you know it's time to chill. Hit that reset button with some mountain cold refreshment. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. Coors Light is the one you should choose when you need to unwind. When you want to hit the reset button, reach for the beer that is made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado, and as always, celebrate. Hey everybody, Matthew Collar here. In case you haven't heard, Blue Wire Studios just dropped their first original podcast, Golden Goal. The show gives you 10-minute episodes about soccer legends and the moments that made them. And whether you're just learning about soccer for the first time or you're a diehard fan, this is a great podcast for everyone. The final two episodes are live right now, or you can binge the entire season to learn about your favorite soccer stars. Check out Blue Wire's Golden Goal, available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Purple Insider. Matthew Collar here, and joining me, he is a pro football-focused draft analyst and two-for-one podcast, along with Mike Renner. It is Austin Gale. What's up, Austin? Nothing much, man. Doing well. That's good to hear. Uh, I got a lot to get into here with the Vikings rookies and where they fit in heading into training camp. If there's training camp and all the rookies show up when they're supposed to show up, and we go from there. So let's just pretend that everything will be fine um, but I, I did want to ask you before we get into uh, all the rookie players and kind of who they're battling against and whether they've got a chance to make an impact just what you think across the league the impact of COVID canceling a large part of the offseason like how that will impact rookies uh, even if they have some of the plans that have been laid out like if they go with what the NFLPA wants to do in having players workout first and then no pads and then pads and no preseason games. I mean, how could that all mess with rookies that are coming into the league? It's, it's massive. Everyone I've talked to about this off season, the first thing they bring up, what's the hardest part about this? What, you know, what, what do you think, what, what do you think COVID is going to have the biggest impact on say rookies? Every single one, Tyron Matthew, Clayus Campbell, um, Scott Pioli, everyone says the rookies, man, the rookies, it's going to be very difficult for rookies who are expected to come in and have prominent roles in an offense or defense to, to hit the ground running. Like Joe Burrow, everyone has all this success. I mean, PFF included, the highest graded season in, in, in PFF college history dating back to 2014. But even we are tempering expectations for Joe Burrow because it's just not going to be easy as a rookie, specifically at the quarterback position, to have success early on. Like these, it's going to be difficult to hit your stride. I and mean, it's not just – learning the offense. It's the chemistry with the players, which is huge for the quarterback position, and also just game shape. Like, being in game shape is a thing. It was one of the reasons why, I think a long time ago, they played six preseason games. Then it dropped down to four, and then obviously uh, we're probably going to see two preseason games, or two preseason games in the future, maybe none this season. It, it, 
it's going to be tough for these rookies, man. And Justin Jefferson's the guy that comes to mind that will probably play a prominent role in the Minnesota Vikings offense. Fortunately for the receiver position, I feel like you're in a better spot there than you are for quarterback or even corner. But it's still not going to be easy. It's way easier said than done to learn the offense via Zoom. You know, and as these players come from totally different backgrounds in terms of online learning and being able to kind of be self-starters in, in that regard. Like, it, there's a lot of self-starters in the NFL from a workout perspective. There's not – I don't know how many there are from, like, a, you know, actually, like, getting into the books here and all that kind of stuff. It, it's going to be difficult. Like, it's not their primary expertise, you know. And I think um, rookies for sure, I think, is going to have the biggest impact here. And even just getting to know your coaches on a on a yes. personal level for them to understand what you do well. I remember last year Gary Kubiak talking about Irv Smith and how they threw the entire move tight end playbook at Irv Smith, and he said he was swimming at the beginning, which any rookie would be, especially if you're asked to do everything that he was. And then they what they did was kind of pare it down to what he felt comfortable with. So they had this long period to kind of be like, here's everything that someone who's good at your position does. Now let's figure out what you do well, what fits in. And I thought he had a very good first year. For Justin Jefferson, that might be a little harder. I mean, the, the conversations that are had between a position coach and a player cannot be replaced via a Zoom call. <laughs> Not at all. And, and and I think the conversations between coaches and obviously the players, obviously the conversations between Kirk Cousins and Justin Jefferson are having. Like finding that chemistry is super important, especially you know a very good reason why Justin Jefferson was so good at LSU is he really understood the offense and he understood how to find open holes in zone coverages and sit where Joe Burrow would find him. And I think it's not like he was creating a ton of separation on the outside and in one-on-one situations they were throwing him the football. I mean, yes, that did happen, but most often for Justin Jefferson, it was over the middle of the field, sometimes scramble drills, those types of things. And, like, you don't get that on Zoom. You just don't. And, and I think just temper expectations. I would tell everyone the temper expectation for rookies out of the gate, weeks one through four, weeks one through six, if they do play, obviously, I think it's going to be very difficult for rookies to adjust. I don't expect a ton of breakout games for Joe Burrow, Justin Jefferson, even on the defensive side of the ball, Chase Young, right out of the gate. Because it's going to be – and, again, just talking – I talked to Tyron Matthew recently. He said there are going to be coaches that are leaning on veteran players more so than any other year. Because in the past, it's like there's been, it's been a much more equal opportunity, so to speak. Like everyone was in training camp. Rookies were there first. Rookie minicamp was there first. Like – it was way more equal in terms of opportunity in those things. Now it's like, who knows the offense? Who's been here? Who have I seen before? And now it's going to be veterans, 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 in my opinion, early in the season. Well, it's a, it's a good humble brag by you that you guys had Tyron Matthew on. And uh, he's, <laughs> he's, he's great. So people should go find the two for one podcast and uh, listen to that. He was great. So that's interesting because on the Vikings offense, really Justin Jefferson is the only key player that could potentially have to start maybe Ezra Cleveland, but that seems like a long shot. Let's talk about some of these defensive guys on the Vikings here, Austin. They drafted all of them. They traded for all the picks and drafted all the defensive players. Uh, But it is interesting because as I was going through to write a piece on everyone's sort of uh, starting point of training camp, I could come up with several guys who are either starters or are rotational, significant rotational players on this defense as rookies. And we were just talking about the additional challenge of that. But I could see uh, not only Jeff Gladney, but Cam Dantzler, DJ Wanham potentially on a rotational role, James Lynch, and even Kenny Willekes, based on his college career, having a chance to, to rotate in and have some type of role here. Oh, no, 100%. And I think starting with the cornerbacks, that is the most 
That is the scariest part of this because cornerback position is a don't lose position. When you lose, it's a touchdown. If Kenny Willekes goes out there and doesn't win a pass rush rep, you can live with that. But if Cameron Dancer or you know Jeff Gladney aren't prepared, they give up big plays when they lose. They give up touchdowns when they lose. I'm not as worried about Jeff Gladney. A big reason I loved him coming out is because he's battle-tested. This guy's got more coverage snaps, more targets, than practically any cornerback drafted this past year. And I think that's going to help him a ton with this abbreviated offseason. Cameron Dancer, on the other hand, they're avoiding him. When the, you know, in the SEC, like people weren't throwing at him. He's going to see probably more targets in his first two years in the NFL than he did all of his career at the collegiate level. So I think he's a guy that I don't know how much I'd want him in a rotational role out of the game. He already has that athletic limitations. You know, he's not the fastest cornerback. He's slight of frame. Like there's a lot of things, you know, his back's against the wall, so to speak, in terms of the learning curve. And then you throw in that he wasn't there all offseason. That's going to make things difficult for him too. But as for Jeff Gladney, he's a very good athlete. He's battle-tested. They played, a, you know, they played a ton of quarters at TCU, but I don't necessarily think the defense is going to be that hard for him to adjust to. I could see Gladney still having enough success or avoiding losses at a higher rate than Dancer. But if you need Dancer in a pinch, say Mike Hughes goes down or something along those lines, man, it would be tough. I mean, it would be big play city, in my opinion, on the Vikings back end, even though Anthony Harris and Harrison Smith are two of the better safeties in the NFL, probably one of the better tandems in the NFL on the outside, along, you know, along the sidelines, that's where the big plays happen. So I'd be very nervous for injury with Mike Hughes. Depth is a bit of a concern because they are so young and they haven't had this opportunity to really get their groove in the NFL. They have no one over the age of 24 playing cornerback this year on the uh, projected starting roster. Dantzler is an interesting one for me, though, because he was, in my mind, the most intriguing player that the Vikings picked throughout the entire draft because we know what Gladney is, we know what Jefferson is from their careers, but Dantzler has the intrigue of running the slow 40 but not really looking like that on TV when you watch him. Look pretty fast to me, or at least fast enough to keep up with top wide receivers. Uh, so the, I think that there is a high ceiling there potentially for him, but also I do get concerned a little bit about the frame. There are very few players that look like that in the NFL. There are always outliers to everything. Every draft season it's, hey, you know, you could draft a 275-pound uh, defensive tackle because of Aaron Donald. Like, okay, well, most <laughs> of them aren't like that, okay? Uh, what do you think about, about that and, and how that translates, if he can play at that kind of size? Yeah, I mean <clears> – <throat> Excuse me. I mean, it comes back to the learning curve. Like, the learning curve is already going to be steep because the receivers are going to be bigger than him, have thicker frames. Also, for a taller cornerback, the dude's got short arms. Like, his length isn't great. Like, I think it was only 30, 31-inch um, arms, and that's a concern with me. Obviously, the experience is a little bit of a concern. He didn't see a ton of targets in Mississippi State. But what you did see, very smart football player. I mean, it takes a smart football player to have – those negatives from a tools perspective and still limit Jamar Chase the way he did against LSU and still play as well as he did in the SEC. And it's because he's smart, because he understands leverages, because he can do, you know, route pattern recognition. Like that is super important. And that's not, you know, people talk about you can't teach athleticism. You can't teach speed. You can't teach length. And that's obvious. Those are genetic things. But it's very difficult. It takes a long time to learn the level of instincts, pattern recognition, understanding of the game that Cameron Dancer. I know it can be taught. You, you put this guy in a classroom, he'll figure it out down the road, but it's easier said than done. I think him coming out of the gate with that leverage from a mindset perspective, from a football IQ perspective, will help him. Will it help him enough when he's going against some of the better receivers in the NFL? I don't know, because these guys are freakish athletes compared to Cam Dancer. You need to be 
10 times as smart as Julio Jones if you're going to limit him. 10 times as smart as Mike Evans, DK Metcalf, these guys that are just freak shows entering the NFL these days. So I think he's he's got his back against the wall a little bit, but having that edge up top, especially while all the other rookies are coming in a little bit lighter from a offseason perspective, I think is important. Can we just stop for a second and, and talk about what you mean by pattern recognition? Because yeah. I feel like, I mean, this is a football man's or woman's podcast, but uh, that's like deep in the weeds. And this is something that's extremely, <laughs> extremely important in Mike Zimmer's defense, probably every defense at this point, but where players have different assignments based on what they see right off the line of scrimmage that they're supposed to be able to read which route combinations they might be, which means as a corner, especially if you're playing nickel, but even as an outside corner, you have to have a good idea of what every pattern and what every route combination might be, especially when they play in tight splits or when they play in bunch formations. I mean, those are designed to throw off cornerbacks and have them lose their assignments. So I, mm-hmm. I, I think that that can't be understated, that that's one of the huge, huge changes from going from playing mostly a one-on-one type of role in college to the NFL, if you're a corner. No, no, it's massive. And it's all about identifying route combinations pre-snap and early in the snap. You know, pre-snap, you see inside splits. I talked to, I can't remember, Jalen Johnson. He's saying, you know, pre-snap splits are massive. Is he close? Is he inside the hash? Is he a little bit closer to tight end? Okay, he's probably running an out-breaking route. How his feet are aligned? Is it outside foot forward, inside step, you know, inside foot forward? How many, you know, is it twins, trips? Like, pre-snap is so important. And I think Jeff Gladney has that. Dantzler has that. After, you know, if you are playing a cover three concept deep third of the field, like, you need to be watching for scissors concepts. So that way, any late crossers deep down the field, you're able to adjust, jump, jump off your wide receiver and play that on the outside sidelines. Like, Again, it comes back to, like, quick game, a lot of pattern recognition, you know, slant flat, slant curl, all that kind of stuff, stick, and all that stuff. But deep down the field, if you are playing cover three, if you are playing cover four, playing the deep side of the field, you need to be those late crossers, like scissors concepts, posts, and um, <clears throat> obviously fades and stuff like that. I think that's super important. But it comes down to pre-snap, you need to be locked in. And then post-snap, early in the snap, based off film study and those things, you need to be identifying the plays and route combinations that they're running. Before we get back to the conversation, want to remind you to go to SodaStick.com to get your original Minnesota sports-inspired goods. Baseball is back, and SodaStick just launched its latest partnership with Hormel Foods and the Tommy Watkins Foundation to pay homage to the Hormel Row of Fame. It debuted in the Metrodome in 1992, and though it's been long retired, you have an opportunity to check out the latest t-shirt called the Wiener Winner. Great for lunch, great for dinner. You remember how the song goes. For every t-shirt sold, Hormel Foods will donate $10 up to $10,000 to Tommy Watkins Foundation's backpack program supporting Twin Cities youth. We're going to hook you up also with free shipping for your Wiener Winner shirt. Use promo code PURPLEINSIDER for free shipping. That's sodastick.com, S-O-T-A. S-T-I-C-K.com, original Minnesota sports-inspired goods, code PURPLEINSIDER for free shipping. There's a reason why Mike Zimmer is obsessed with smart players and doesn't care that <laughs> Everyone much. should be. Yeah, right. Athleticism certainly matters, but smarts over athleticism in the NFL, I think. Uh, let's talk about some of these rotational rushers. Now, I was on a, a call with uh, Andre Patterson, and I said – you know, when Andre Patterson wants him, he gets him. So why did you want him with DJ Wanham? And he <laughs> hung up and uh, my credential was pulled, basically. Um, <laughs> but DJ Wanham is an intriguing one because Andre Patterson has a great record of being able to spot guys that fit for Andre Patterson. 
And he is like the secret weapon of the Vikings organization, the way that he's able to develop defensive linemen. And we saw this even with someone like Steven Weatherly, who got paid uh, this last offseason. But he developed from a guy who was on the practice squad and all the way up into a rotational rusher and had some success last year. Uh, I think they view DJ Wanham as kind of similar, but in the situation they're in, they can't just have Everson Griffin there playing 90% of the snaps and then everybody else slowly develops. They might need Wanham or they might need James Lynch to step up and be a, a key player right away if they're going to be good, especially in those third down situations. No, absolutely. I think the Weatherly comparison is interesting. I think <clears throat> obviously Weatherly 6'5", 265, Wanham 6'5", 260 in that range. But Weatherly, in my opinion, plays the run a lot better than DJ Wanham did at South Carolina. Also has a little bit more tools. Like, and I know Wanham's a relatively young player, I think 22 years old. You, you go back to the senior bowl tape and you just didn't see him win as an edge rusher. And you wanted him to, in these one-on-one situations, you need to be able to beat these guys. You're going against, obviously, some of the top tackles in the country. But those one-on-one situations, there's a reason all 32 teams go. There's a reason why draft analysts like myself really look at that. Because you get an opportunity in these one-on-one situations to see you know, how deep into the toolbox are they going? What kind of burst do they have? Can they match some of the quicker offensive tackles in the league? And Wanham, you just didn't see it. And that, that concerns me. However, developing a player like Wanham, who does maybe have some of the tools you want, size, length, et cetera, it comes down to the tools. And like Everson Griffin has great, you know, great tools. Daniel Hunter has gotten better every single year in adding tools. Weatherly, another guy. I don't think Wanham's a player that I'd expect. Not So you compare him to Wilkie's. Wilkie's coming in with a lot of tools, a lot of bend, athleticism. This guy could you know, already offer a ton as a pass rusher in year one, but his ceiling, I think, a little bit more limited than Wanham. As for Wanham, I think he needs some years. He needs, he needs some time to really grow as a pass rusher. You need to see him win with a variety of moves, have a counter to his primary move. And I think that's why, if I had to highlight one of the, you know, between Wanham and Willikies, who's going to have a bigger impact this year, I think I'd go with the, the Michigan State kid. Why do you think it was that Willikies dropped? Everyone that I've talked to that studies the draft is like, yeah, we had him as kind of a third-round pick or a fourth-round pick. And when you watch him, he was he was pretty beastly. I mean, he looked yeah. like a good player. Is it just because the physical tools weren't perfect or I don't know, because the production was definitely there? I mean, I think sometimes you can be miscast a bit as like a, you know, a high-motor type, a guy that's you know, all pursued, all this like – heart in those things. I feel like people do like to miscast those that maybe don't have elite length, elite athleticism, but he's a very good athlete. Not as good an athlete as I'd say Chase Winovich was, but he, something that does stand out on his tape is his bend. <clears throat> his stance out of the snap is insane. Like he is literally like sniffing the grass from his stance because he can get so low and win the leverage battle consistently. I don't know why he fell as far as he did. I think some people see a limited ceiling with Willikies as compared to a guy like Wanham or other passers in this draft, but like you also, when you're getting in the day two, day three, like you're chasing floors at a certain point. Like these guys are going to play on your football team. They're going to be on rookie contracts making less than 600 grand a year. And if you can get good production out of those players, and I think Willikie's in addition to obviously playing on defense, maybe as early impact player, rotational piece, guys going to play special teams and be very good at it. You can expect that with his athleticism, his size, et cetera. Now with Lynch, he's another guy that everybody I talked to loved where the Vikings got him. His production was bananas. I mean, it's one of the best sack seasons in college football history uh, for, for James Lynch, but they want him to go from outside to being an inside rusher. And as a 
beat reporter, I've heard this one a number of times. Well, you know what we're going to do with him here? Uh, Hercules Matafa was great. Mm-hmm. Started him at linebacker, and then it was defensive end, and then it was back inside the defensive tackle, and now he's getting fatter, so now it's going to work. And it's just like, you know, sometimes <laughs> it's crazy with, with how they, they'll try, some, you know, a bunch of different things. But usually if you've got to change positions going into the NFL, they dealt with this with Jalen Holmes. He's a defensive end at Ohio State. They move him inside. It's a totally different ball game. Not everybody can do that. And even with uh, Afadi Adenabo, they try moving him inside, and then they eventually have to come back to him being a defensive end. So yeah. what do you think of that move and how that might translate with Lynch, who is a guy, by the way, who has wide-open opportunities to win this rotational job and play a lot for the Vikings this year? Yeah, first thing I want to say about Lynch is talking to Chad Ryder, who is a longtime NFL.com writer who's been a, a big um, NFL draft guy. He had James Lynch going in the first round. I mean, he he, thought he was very high on James Lynch. I was never as high on him. And you look at his totals here, 16 sacks according to PFF, which in PFF we count half sacks as full sacks. You deserve full credit for getting there. And then 70 total pressures. That is a ton playing in the Big 12. However, when I look at that and I see a 79.5 PFF pass rushing grade, it leads to me to think that a high volume of those pressures, a high volume of those sacks weren't true pass rush wins. They were pursuit pressures, cleanup pressures, all those things. And then that's kind of what you saw from him. He's not a player that won a ton initially. However, what he did a great job of, pursuit, cleanup, always staying active, active hands, active feet, and that, that'll wrap you up a ton of pressures and sacks in the NFL. But if you're going to be dominant, if you're going to be elite on the edge, you need to win early in the snap. I always talk about winning early in the snap as, as a key thing because that's what leads to sacks. That's what leads to big negative plays is when you win early as a pass rusher in one-on-one situations. And as big as he is, what, 295 pounds, 6'4", 295, like you don't want him playing along the edge. And I don't necessarily think you want him playing, um, you know, losing weight to play along the edge because I don't think he's ever going to have that level of burst that you want playing along the edge to be successful. But you kick him inside, obviously there's going to be a learning curve. You're going against bigger guys, but you're going against phone booth types. And if this guy can maintain some of what he did as an edge rusher at Baylor when he gets kicked inside, he could be very successful. And those active hands, those active feet on the inside lead to a high volume of not necessarily always pressures, but bailing out of pockets, keeping people from stepping up. And that has a ton of value as well. Yeah, and you know that there's going to be pressure created from one side for the Vikings, and then yes. you have something else coming from that other side. Uh, there's a couple other guys I wanted to ask you about and just where they might fit in. And I, I think that um, if one player was up against it the most for his chances to surprise everyone and be a starter, it's probably Ezra Cleveland. I mean, if you can get in there in OTAs and rookie minicamp and all those things and minicamp and at least see what it looks like to face off with someone like Afadi Adenabo. In past years, it was hilarious to watch other rookies come in and, and go against Everson Griffin. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if people outside of Minnesota fully realize how insanely good Everson Griffin is at football. But, uh, <laughs> it, but even then, just get your feeling for what it's going to look like and where you would fit in an offense and maybe even try him at guard a little bit because that position is wide open. This, the way that this offseason has played out, it's almost like it wouldn't be safe for Ezra Cleveland to start in the NFL going from Boise State. No, I, I would put chances of him starting out of the gate very low and even chances of him starting this season, barring injury, of course, very low. Like, this guy needs time. Like, that was – when Mike and I were watching Ezra Cleveland State, very good feet. Curtis Weaver said that to me as well. He's got the best feet in the draft. Very quick. You have to, you have to lean on a toolbox because you can't just beat him with pure speed. And that's why he went as high as he did. You know, he didn't have – 
elite production at Boise State from a pass blocking perspective. But when you have athleticism, feet like you do, and guys can't just win with speed, can't just win with, you know, bursts off the snap, that gives you a leg up on freaking half the NFL. You know, like these are tackles that literally can't get out of their stance but have better technique, you know, better power, all that type of stuff. But Ezra Cleveland, you kick him inside, you almost lose his best trait. Like, I mean, there's a reason they call him phone booth types. You don't need to move that much. But his best trait is moving. His best trait is sticking with speed rushers on the outside. I think it would be better for him to work behind, obviously, the two tackles here, Brian O'Neill and Riley Reef, and get great, be great at left or right tackle. Be great at that and working in, you know, training camp and those uh, – training camp and practice during the season. You kick him inside for reps. I could see that just so – because he needs to get stronger. And if you're going to get stronger, going against some of those beefier types would be great. But I, I would put I would put chances low at him starting out of the gate. But I do think down the road, when you are ready to move on from Riley Reef, I think Ezra Cleveland could be a foundational piece for this Vikings offensive line. He just needs to get stronger, and he needs to you know go against top-flight competition. Playing the Mountain West, he has not seen elite pass rushers outside the one he saw in practice in Curtis Weaver, and even he didn't fall, you know fell to day three of the draft. I think he needs experience. He needs the weight room. He needs the he needs the protein shakes. He needs all of those things to uh, before he's like going to be very good in the NFL. Hey, before we get back to the conversation, I want to remind you that sports are coming back and so are your chances to bet on your favorite teams and events. There's no better place to start than our exclusive partners, Bet Online. Get in on the action for this week's big UFC fight or check out odds on NASCAR, Formula One, and the Premier League. Can't wait for your favorite team to come back. Bet Online has future odds on win totals, division winners, and even league championships. Or check out our daily simulations of Madden NBA 2K to watch and wait. On. Visit betonline.ag, use the promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. And, and there's no bigger technical, in my opinion, technical difference from, uh, from college to the NFL than playing on the offensive line, not only with what you're asked to do, but mm-hmm. what they're asked to, to do and how good they are, the players you're going up against. Because uh, my buddy, Say Rosenfels, likes to make this point, that uh, if you're a good edge rusher, you'll be in the league till you're 36. So most of these guys that are coming in on a weekly basis are probably in their late 20s or their early 30s. They, they stay in the league for a long time, and they've got a lot of experience on how to whoop your ass. So uh, it probably would be best for him. Plus the Vikings have tackle depth. They have Ole Udo, they have Rashad Hill. Like these players can step in and play. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, for anybody in the late rounds here, uh, this is again sort of an area where a lot of people liked what the Vikings did with someone like Troy Die. I know that you guys were very high on Troy Die. Shouldn't necessarily have a role right away, um, but anybody in those later rounds stand out to you as someone that could outside of Willikies, who we talked about, maybe surprise a little in terms of earning some type of role uh, at their position? I'd say Brian Cole is an option. I mean, Brian Cole, largely because, I mean, his tape wasn't great, but, like, he's a very good athlete. And good athletes find the football field in the NFL, specifically on special teams. I think a big thing for him comes down to mindset. Like, if he's ready to approach the NFL's business, approach it as I'm going to play special teams and be the best damn special teams player out there, I think he could have a lot of success early on. He's a name that not a lot of people are talking about, largely because his production, his film wasn't fantastic. He still has a lot of learning to do. But, again, when you have those raw tools, taking flyers on guys like that can be um, can be important. So I think Willie Keys is the guy we mentioned. Troy Dye, I don't think he finds the field outside of special teams this year, and I think that's a good thing for the, for the Minnesota Vikings. I think he's a great player, but you want – Anthony Barr and Eric Hendricks and even Eric Wilson 
on the football field as much as you can. I think all three of those players have performed uh, above expectations since entering the NFL. I, I got no other rookies for you, but I will say I was a huge Hercules Matafa fan. If they could just figure him out, if they could just figure him out, you know, whatever weight he's at now, if he, if he can get back to even like 80% of what he was at Washington State, I think he'd be lights out because he was so good at Washington State and obviously played a t- played an entirely different weight, and he played an entirely different role almost. They played a lot of, like, pinball. I don't know if you – pinball tilt is when you're kind of, like, tilted on the offensive linemen facing kind of, like, their side of their face and stuff. Like, they did a bunch of crazy shit. Pre-snap, pre-snap moving. They, like, like on down, they set to move to a different angle. Like, all that stuff was a lot – he had a culture shock, scheme change, going from Washington State to Minnesota. So I feel like in addition to being asked probably to eat every single hour of your day – he had to learn a lot of new things as well. But if somehow, some way, he can stay healthy, add the weight necessary, and learn the system, I, I really do like Hercules Matafa. Millennial uh, Vikings fans will remember Henry Thomas lining up the way that you're uh, describing. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I, I just can't be super excited about Matafa because – with his size, everyone makes the like, hey, John Randall. And you're like, yeah, right. That's an all-time <laughs> outlier in John Randall, who is one of the most gifted football players in the history of the game. So that's, you know, and there's a lot more Hercules Mataafas who have gone nowhere. Now, he was mentioned again by Andre Patterson of a guy to keep an eye on. I just, when I see him go up against guards, I see him get swallowed. I just see yes. it like disappear. Like, wait, where'd he go? Oh, he's in the guard's stomach. That's where he went. And Man. That, it, it's a tough one when the other guy you're going up against is probably longer than you, wider than you. And, and I don't know. I just feel like yeah. you have to have this unbelievable athleticism and burst and knowledge of the game and technique and all those things to play at that slightly smaller size. And, and especially because, like, when your weaknesses are so obvious against the run, like, it makes things difficult to kind of play him. Like, and obviously you can play him on passing downs, third downs, and those things, but, like, you can't get caught with him on early downs. You can't get caught in no huddle with Hercules Matafa playing first and second down. Like, it's going to make things very difficult against the run. Because he, was, he wasn't good against the run at Washington State. Like, his best plays against the run were, you know, knifing through the backfield, finding a gap, shooting a gap. But, like, in the NFL, like, that's very rare. Like, Aaron Donald can knife a gap, shoot a gap. You need to play the man in front of you and beat him. That is the NFL. That is playing the run. And it's why they ask these big dudes, like the guys they have in Baltimore, Michael Pierce, uh, Brandon Williams. Now they have Clayus Campbell. Like that's why they bring those guys in to be beefy dudes and, and beat the guy in front of you. Another guy I'll mention, Armand Watts, former Arkansas defensive tackle. Who's another, guy, who's another guy that won early in the snap at Arkansas but he had so few true pass rush opportunities. That's when no play action, five, seven step drop, not no, no rollout, any of that stuff, because they're always getting dogged. Arkansas was getting wrecked in the SEC every week. Like he was playing the run more than he was playing the pass. But the few opportunities he was able to pin his ears back, you saw a lot of impress, you know, a lot of impressive plays from Armand Watts. I'd love to see him in a situation where he could turn it on, pin his ears back, play the pass normally. I, I think he could have some success. Yeah, no, I think you 100% nailed it with Armand Watts. If you watch Week 17 against Chicago, going up against starters, he was maybe the best player on the field. And nice. uh, there, there were times where he ro- reminded me a little bit of Sheldon Richardson, where if he beat his blocker and he took that one step, that drive, that acceleration toward the quarterback, he closed quickly on Mitch Trubisky. And it was really impressive. And I, I think he kind of blew them away a little bit when he got a chance last year. Um, if you want to follow Austin on Twitter, you can 
at PFF underscore Austin Gale, the one person who gets to use their whole name on Twitter, I guess, in PFF. <laughs> and uh, I can't tell you enough how much I love the two-for-one podcast with you and Mike Renner. It is absolutely tremendous, even when it's not draft SZN, Austin. It's, uh, it's great. <laughs> the interviews you guys did through draft season and then have continued to do have been uh, outstanding. So love your work, and uh, we'll catch up again sometime, and hopefully those rookies will be out there. We'll be watching them. Man, yeah, I'm crossing my fingers. I really appreciate you having me on.